Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. This is our Wednesday show where we niche down into a single topic. And this time it's about if the era of founder-led companies is ending. I'm Natasha Mascarenas and joining me is the ever wonderful Alex Wilhelm. Alex, how the heck are you? I'm good. I, I'm terrified, though, that our theme for the show is, is slightly f- spicier than the conversation we're going to have by like one <laughs> or two degrees. I, you know, not ending per se, but is it perhaps in decline, maybe? <laughs> That's fair. I, our headline, our spicy headline got nixed yesterday. So now I'm like very much trying to bring it back. So Alex and I spoke yesterday and we, we talk every day, but especially yesterday because Jack Dorsey stepped down from Twitter. And while we would always cover like a big CEO stepping down, I think the reason we're doing this episode specifically is because of a line that he used in his resignation tweet. He really talked about that founder-led companies are not like a perfect way to be building your company. You should be able to be a company that stands alone away from founder influence and direction. Does that feel like a fair paraphrase, Alex? Yeah, I, I think we'll just add to that by, by reading the line that he said. So the, the thing that really kind of made our eyebrows go up was Jack saying, quote, there's a lot of talk about the importance of being founder led, but ultimately he believes that that's a severely limiting proposition and creates a single point of failure. That's a strong bit of language from someone who has been a co-founder and a CEO of a business that he put together. And as Panzer talked to us about, as we were all like kind of freaking out about it internally at TC, Jack didn't have to say that. <laughs> a lot of resignation notices or, or tweets are pretty boring. So I think this is worth looking into. And so to understand where startups are today and how they position their founders and how they think about the eventual succession of founders, we've actually brought together two of our favorites, both a founder and investor. First, we have Iris Choi, a partner at Floodgate and the mind behind Market Musings, which you can find on Mondays at 11.45 a.m. PT. Iris, so great to have you back on the show. It's fun to be back. Thank you. I think you're our most frequent guest, Alex. I take a lot of pride in that. <laughs> it's it's Iris Troy and, and Charles Hudson are the two most repeaters, but also Iris, the, the market musings are on your Twitter account, right? Yes, that's correct. And your Twitter handle is? At Donuts Did This. One of the better ones out there. <laughs> 100%. Then we also have Stella Hahn, who I actually talked to just a few weeks ago, and she was so great that we wanted to bring her on the show. She is the co-founder of Fractional, which is an early stage startup, recently closed a seed round, and they want to make it easier to co-own properties with your friends and even with strangers. Stella, thank you for joining the show. Yeah, of course. So happy to be here. So we're going to get a little uncomfortable today. We're going to talk about this spicy topic, and we're, I mean, but we're also going to talk first about the resignation and what it means to know when it's time to step away. So I would love, I guess we can all share our first opinions on Jack's resignation. Alex, what was your like first, first glance opinion? Two things. One, I was incredibly annoyed that he was stepping down because it feels like Twitter has really found its groove in the last two or three quarters in terms of product updates. And so, you know, finally getting the Twitter product team that I, a user has long wanted you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, don't change anything. It's fine. This is good. You know, we're finally doing cool stuff with Twitter. I'm a Twitter Blue subscriber. I use Twitter Spaces. I'm building a little newsletter on review for fun. So like somehow I've become this like uber, uber Twitter power user, even more so than before. On the other hand, I thought his comments were interesting and good and brought up a great conversation. You know, I, I we have moved from an era in which founders were often replaced with professional CEOs to today's era in which they are not. And there's been an enormous change in perspective. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that, some of them which make sense, some don't. But here is someone going against the current narrative, against what I hear from most VCs and founders. It was exciting. Stella, as a founder, what was your take, like saying something pretty so, so explicit as, as you're kind of leaving the company? 
my first initial thoughts was just like, there's no right formula for everything. It's definitely case by case, depending on the company, where things are at, what the team is like, what the vision is, and who is the right people to communicate that and what's the right team to, to get that to happen. So I think that was kind of my initial reaction. Yeah. And Iris, had you seen something like this happen before? Well, you know, I thought it was an interesting statement to make because for context, keep in mind, obviously they had an activist investor in the company for about a year and a half. It's Elliott Management, who was fairly explicit about actually wanting to replace the CEO, saying that a CEO is a full-time job. So splitting your attention between two high growth companies is not really ideal. And so I just thought it was an interesting tone to take when you battled an activist investor. Part of the compromise was obviously letting two additional board members come on, do a full review as to succession planning, and then come up with a statement that in some sense lends that much more support to the activists that you've actually been battling for the last you know, 18 to 24 months. I totally agree that that's a fascinating dynamic, but I, I want to go back and, and argue a little bit with the idea that Twitter is, is, a, is a high growth company, because I think that's a slight <laughs> stretch. I, I think that would be, that's more optimism than I think trailing results. But the, the Elliot thing was interesting. I mean, they were under pressure to replace Jack, but I'm just thinking a lot about this. If you're the CEO of say Microsoft, right? You have way more companies underneath you than Jack does with Square and Twitter. And yet we still expect companies like Microsoft uh, or Amazon really to have one CEO despite being a multi-part business. Like having one person atop Amazon, which is a consumer e-commerce business, a media company, a shipping network, and also a cloud computing empire... Well, that sounds kind of dumb. Why can't Jack do two? But you know what, Alex? It's interesting because when I was reading your article yesterday uh, that Natasha had kicked off, one of the nuances that I thought was interesting to consider is that there are a lot of founder-led companies where the founder may still be CEO, but really there's other grownups in the room as well, right? So especially in the scenario that you just described, you have GMs that are well poised to actually become CEO if the CEO for whatever reason were to transition out. And it's an interesting point that you raise where if you look at those big companies, they are running multiple and oftentimes disparate businesses. And so to a certain point, is it that different versus running two publicly traded companies? Maybe not. I think the part that was more surprising to me in terms of a transition is you don't often see the CTO actually be named as the next CEO. When you've seen transition at, let's say, you know, old school kind of fortune 500 technology companies, it's usually someone who grew up in the sales rank and then became yeah. GM of the largest business who then naturally transitions into the CEO spot or comes in from outside having already been a CEO. Funny you say that because you described Microsoft from Gates to the Balmer era, because Balmer was one of the leading sales people. And that's why he made so much money off Microsoft stocks, the way he put together his contract. But then Microsoft moved, went over to Satya, who wasn't the CTO per se, but ran the cloud computing division at the company. So maybe, maybe this is kind of the new way to do successions, to have a tech first person as opposed to a business first person take the reins. I think something that always confuses me is sometimes it feels obvious looking back at these companies that there had to be a changing of guard. With Twitter, it didn't feel obvious. And so now I'm like, okay, so for every startup, no matter what stage they are right now, how, how early is too early to start thinking about what your company looks like when it changes leadership or at least changes like the sphere of influence around it? Stella, I know you're in like the earliest days of building Fractional right now. Like, is this a conversation that's coming up? I think the conversation is mostly around thinking about, it's almost like the transition between from being like a co-founder into more of like a leader or putting a title to it. I think that role is a little bit different where the first when you're a co-founder, 
very active in terms of the execution of the product, the delivery versus being an executive leader. It almost feels like it's around the execution is around how well you can empower other people to take the reins and, and take things into action and, and have the company grow. So I think that's where a lot of the conversations are in figuring out, you know, what is the right way to kind of give the power and almost decentralize it. I think a lot of the parallels is like, you know, when you need a conductor for the orchestra, it's communicating that vision and that magic, and then having everyone be able to be a team and, and carry out that whole experience together and deliver it to the audience and the consumers. It's interesting, huh. so I don't know if this would resonate with you, but at Flygate, we have this phrase that we kind of use facetiously, but with an element of truth, which is at some point, the founder becomes a VP of nothing, right? So in the beginning, you are the head of product, or you may be the head engineer, you are both an individual contributor, as well as the person that's picking up all the loose ends or filling in the gaps. And yet when you get to the growth stage, you probably have hired in VPs that are actually specialists. So marketing, tech lead, head of product, ideally. And so then you go back to being actually CEO, which is to both be the visionary as well as be responsible for hiring incredible talent and making sure the trains are running on time and you're actually shipping product. But to a certain extent, um, you have to let the founder be elevated and not just be in the weeds anymore. Now, I think the part that's interesting, though, is to bring it back to Jack, I think uh, people have often referenced that his leadership style is to be fairly hands-off anyways. Um, and so there's a part of me that feels like, oh, the transition to Twitter should go fairly smoothly because it seems like there's a lot of chatter that this was already how things were actually working is that Jack maybe had broader product vision, but the actual day-to-day -day operations are actually being led by others. And it's interesting because again, to my earlier comment, I feel like this is actually how it's being done at a lot of founder-led companies, right? You'll see that the founder is still the CEO, but then they bring in at some point C-level executives, you know, maybe they come with the title of COO or president that are much more internally focused, but more responsible for making sure all the trains are actually running on time. I want to talk a little bit about like ego too, and how that plays into what you kind of described, Iris, which is this really perfect, sensical way to grow as a company. What happens when the founder is that base of the company and they choose to leave? What does it do for the company? But at the end of the day, like people still associate this single human with the success of a company. Like, am I off base for viewing it, at, viewing companies like that these days? Or does that feel like the reality that we're still living in, which is like a founder is the success of a company? Well, I thought it was interesting that Jack actually, again, referenced that in his departure statement as well, which is bringing ego into the equation. And I also found it surprising that he said he's actually going to leave the board after his term is over in about less than a year, right? So it's a very kind of clean break that he's planning for. And it made me remember something I heard Reid Hoffman talk about when he transitioned from CEO of LinkedIn and brought in Jeff Weiner, which mm -hmm. is that he actually left the office for six months. So people yeah. couldn't come to him with any of their questions. It had to be Jeff, but obviously he continued to be very involved. And so it was, it just felt much more kind of sudden and jarring, to be frank, the way that Jack is approaching it. But, but we're, we're talking here again about voluntary departures or a founder setting aside a portion of the responsibilities or a title or whatever. But this is the, the current norm. If we go back in time, hiring in a professional CEO was a relatively standard part of building a company. I mean, like famously, the Google co-founders had to bring on Eric Schmidt and Eric Schmidt was the CEO for a while and he was not a co-founder. It's kind of hilarious to imagine 
Sequoia now demanding that a Series A or B company bring on a professional CEO. I mean, can you imagine the firestorm this would cause? <laughs> but in Google's case, it worked out fine. Then things changed. And there has been a shift in the power from VCs, I would say, to founders as capital has become a little bit more available, a little bit more commoditized. And so we are now in this founder-friendly environment. And, and my question really, uh, Iris first, and then I want to hear Stella's thoughts about this, but like, have we reached peak founder friendliness? Is this as, as far as it can go? Because we, we do treat founders these days essentially like monarchs and in a hereditary sense, like like it's theirs to keep. And doesn't seem healthy to me from a business perspective because you outgrow your first VP sales, you outgrow your first VP marketing. Why don't you outgrow your founder as CEO? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. And to your um, point about have we reached peak founder friendliness? I don't know if there will be a peak, to be frank, right? Precisely <laughs> because of what you pointed to, which is when there's so much capital, how do you differentiate the ultimate decision maker in a fundraise who will be the CEO? Um, I think that there is still the question in my mind also of is the CEO being the founder necessary for the ability to continue to fundraise, to be frank, right? Because mm -hmm. not only are they visionary, but there's also just the inspiration and like the team wants to be able to go into battle under the leadership of this one person who is what they've always known. And you'll see a lot more. I think it's pretty common practice these days to have executive coaches, advisors, exactly to what you pointed to. Even if you don't have an Eric Schmidt on staff, you have one who's a mentor. And you've seen a lot of VCs actually assign people as part of their kind of value-added services when they do a round of funding. So essentially, people are building a CEO around the CEO to ensure that the founder CEO doesn't fall down. Stella, would you, would you rather have literally a bodyguard of assistance or would you rather have someone else manage business operations if fractional gets to the scale in which you're like, oh my gosh, there's like 10,000 people here? I still think for me, it goes back to like, what is the most effective way to scale the company? Maybe it is the bodyguards, maybe it's someone else. It's hard for me to lay down like a formula for what it is. It's so specific to that case, that team, all the people that want to believe in this thing and make it happen that I will still kind of fall back and really like analyze on that specific situation to see what's best. I'm going to make maybe like a bad comparison, but I think so like with reporters, for example, Oftentimes people view the next big job or like the promotion to, become, to be being an editor, which is much more managerial. You're handling things and making sure they look great when they get on the site and asking important questions and doing strategy and all of the above. And I know like for me and I think for Alex, you too, like we're not like super excited at the idea of being an editor full time. We want to be writers full time in the weeds, super excited and super involved. And so I imagine the same thing goes from like an early stage founder getting to like a growth stage founder position is like they have to learn how to let other people take the wheel. And Stella, as you're like doing a lot of hiring and talking to your co-founder about this, how has it impacted the way you're building in general? We emphasize a lot around like ownership and autonomy. People want to feel that, you know, they are empowered to be empowering other people in the team as well, being able to guide the direction of the product or how things are being run. I think that's one of like the biggest things that we channel when we're doing recruiting is People want to feel that they are an important piece of getting something through. I think something that even aligns with like the mission of the company, where it's like everyone is a true owner of whatever it is to really like reach alignment. And just noticing that when everyone is like aligned on having something become true, it's so much easier for it to be a collaborative process and to deliver the results. So then who sets that high bar of truth, though? I suppose that's when the founder comes into play or the founding team. Oh, yeah, see, I, I'm just I'm torn because on, on one hand, I agree with what Ira said about inspiration and fundraising. And I, I agree with what you said, Stella, which really 
points to a lack of ego. You're talking about what's the best time, what's the best process, what's the best result. But I guarantee you that if I was the CEO of a cool company and we just raised our Series C and someone said to me, Alex, look, you know, you've done fine so far, but you are an incompetent manager and a terrible fundraiser, I would tell them to go fuck themselves and it's my company. So like, it's very easy for me to sit here and pot shot, but I think I would struggle with it. It probably takes a, a level of maturity to choose to step back today versus in the old days when you were kind of arm twisted into it. Um, but I wonder if it's just if it's just a very human issue. Like it's, it's a hard thing to do personally. Yeah, and I, th- I think we've seen some of like the jokes on Twitter about like this is another version of the great resignation is like founders realizing like what's been happening around them. But like in a more serious way, I'm like wondering, is anything changing about how founders are looking at their role of their company long term? Like is the pandemic influencing it? Are there other market conditions we should be considering? Or is this just, you know, a conversation that will stop today and and depend more on like every single startup individually? Well, I think it's interesting because specific to Jack, I think he actually referenced the fact that he wants to spend more time both focused on philanthropy and then also crypto, which is something that he's very much worn on his sleeve, right? I mean, you see the direction of Square. I'm more surprised, to be frank, that he wouldn't just continue the way that he was, which is he's spending a lot of time being a Bitcoin maximalist and also running Square. So what was the critical breaking point that made him feel like this isn't the go forward path, right? Which is, I think still a question mark for a lot of us. I I think it's premature to think that there's going to be the great resignation in the founder CEO on a go forward basis. And I I guess my one spicy comment throwing other uh, investors under the bus with me (laughs) about, you know, how founder friendly we are is what's been really surprising to me has been even as companies go public, how amenable investors have been in like the dual class structure, right? Which historically people would have said that's you know, at, at death knolls, you can't do that. Public investors won't accept it. And then you'll have just activists immediately raid your stock. And yet you've seen that repeatedly in IPOs. And so it, to me, that has been the sign of maybe peak uh, founder friendliness, which is if the founder is still the CEO and they can say, I want to have, you know, multiple votes per share and literally have a different class of equity. That means on a go forward basis, the expectation is they're securing their position. Just to kind of uh, add to that, what we're seeing is companies going public with dual class shares, usually class A and class B. Class A shares, they sell to schmucks like, you know, us, uh, one vote per share. And then they're like, oh, by the way, there's also 10 million shares that are class B and they have 20 votes apiece, which means that the founder, CEO, founding team, whatever, has absolute control of the company in terms of voting. Sometimes there's a sunset period, sometimes not. Sometimes you have companies like Snap that offer no votes per share. There's other exceptions, but generally speaking, that's what you're saying. And to your point, if the public markets will accept it, it's hard probably for VCs to say, well, maybe not, because you can scale this all the way through. And that brings us kind of iris to Mark Zuckerberg, because people have pointed to Facebook historically as a company that has been founder-led and founder-controlled and has done, in financial terms, incredibly well. I'm just curious, Iris, how much stock do you put in that particular example, or is it more of an outlier than a paradigm to follow? You know, I think that it is more likely to be an outlier than a paradigm to follow. And it's interesting because I feel like what we're not talking about as much these days is there was a period in the early, I guess, career of Mark and scaling Facebook where people were questioning, is he really the CEO or is it Sheryl Sandberg? Right. And so um, it's funny, right, Tasha? It's like we don't really talk about that anymore. If anything, you sometimes see headlines saying that, you know, she's 
kind of more in the background these days. Um, but there was a period of time when that was actually more the quintessential example of you can keep the founder in as CEO, but someone else is actually running the business. I think we've seen that kind of balance go back and forth at Facebook. But I think if, if we think about just sheer votes, it's still in Mark's hands. I mean, like he can Mark has a veto ability to on anything the company does. And that's why I think people are often, you know, I think a little bit worried that the media is overly critical of Zuck. But to me, if you arrogate to yourself the right to have complete power of a company, you're responsible for what it does. Just kind of like full stop, not to be overly serious about this. Um, Stella, do you guys have dual class shares at Fractional? Do you have extra uh, votes for yourself? <laughs> they do not. Okay. You're like hard pass. <laughs> why? And, and why, why that choice? Why not build yourself in some more protection? That way your investors can later on try to swap you. Uh, it's just, it hasn't been a concern so far. Like that's not where my head's at really. Um, I think if it comes up later, you know, maybe it's, it's a discussion for later. Um, but certainly raise, not right now. Did you raise money on a safe? Yeah, we raised money on a safe. Okay. Yeah. So that's why it's not a price round. So you'll probably raise a price around the next year. I'm not, I'm not digging here. I'm just kind of thinking out loud. So probably the next year. So you'll probably have to set a valuation. So it, we'll be, please come back on the show when you do that and tell us how it, how it shook out, because I'm curious if it's offered or brought up or, or how that conversation comes into being. Cause I'm on the other end of it. I hear about it 10 years later versus when it, you know, happens. Even the fact that you were in YC pretty recently as they deal with addressing the pandemic, I'm sure through their instruction as well, probably give you insight into how often people are talking about these sorts of tensions. Like what would you say if, if this is one of the tensions or if there's another big elephant in the room that founders are dealing with right now when it comes to power and influence and decentralization. I think it comes down to like incentive alignment at the end of the day. Like what is your personal incentive? What are the investors incentives? What's the teams, your co-founders, all of that. I guess that that ties back even to like the ego thing, right? It's like ego is a huge part of a person's personal incentives. And maybe that's why they might be doing something that seems right to them, but maybe it's not for the company overall. Figuring out what is the more holistic, bigger picture incentive that everyone should be aligned on and and kind of removing yourself from being so in the weeds in the heated moment and doing what's overall the best. What is your North Star incentive? Is it appreciation of the company's value or is it allowing the maximum number of people possible to get a higher exposure to real estate to build a longer term asset base for themselves? I think my longer term value is, is bringing access to that asset class and allowing okay. more people to be included in the community of being real estate owners then you should definitely get dual class shares because if you're not putting corporate return at the top of your ladder, you defend yourself. Um, Iris, over to you, last one for me, then I'm going to shut up. Um, but you guys at, at Floodgate have been investing for a long time, lots of deals, companies that we all know. I, I would say a good pedigree. Not to be overly nice to you, but we, we do think you're great. How often do you run into founder control issues? Like, does it, does it happen often or do you guys not really have much of um, a scrap with founders that you end up disagreeing with on, on material issues? I would say less so at our stage, and you'll see it more as they continue to grow, right? And it'll come up in different forms. For example, what is the equity grant refresh that's going to happen? Mm. Or how soon will it happen, right? I mean, we write the first check into a company knowing there's multiple ways for us to get diluted down. One is obviously as they continue to fundraise. The other is you know, repeated option pull refreshes where really we're the ones that are then eating that dilution. And is that because there's an expectation that the founders are going to continue to get more equity every couple of years, sometimes even in advance of their initial equity fully vesting in. And so it's less for us about the dual class voting shares, because I think you're 
more likely to see that at the later stages, especially in preparation for an IPO. Can I just say, I'm so happy that late stage has some drama baked into it because usually it's like early stage, co-founder breakups, but board tensions and shares are just things that I don't think of enough. And I'm going to start paying more attention to late stage. I see what you do it, Alex. Well, no, the downside <laughs> is that, you know, you can call up one founder that had a bad breakup and they'll tell you what's going on. If you call up a, a board, a professional board oh my member, God. one, good luck. And two, Good luck. Like, I mean, like, they're not going to tell you Jack. Like, they had the best job in the world. I get paid to show up once every three months to sit. I'm not going to jeopardize that, you know? Come I know. On. I recently started watching Succession, and I feel like this has, like, completely changed my perspective on covering older companies. <laughs> on that note, thank you all so much for joining us to talk about founder dynamics and how to make sure ego is both a part and not part of your long-term strategy. Thank you, Iris. Thank you, Stella, so much. And we will see everyone else back on Friday. 